here as we come to the book of Esther this morning, chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Before we get to our text, as we come to this text this morning, uh, where we are confronted with a topic that many of us get uncomfortable with. Uh, We get uncomfortable with the idea of God's wrath or vengeance. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, this can be a very uncomfortable topic. For the Christian, this uncomfortableness is often tied to the reality that God is love. And we have a hard time understanding how God can be a God of love and yet show his wrath and even seek vengeance. And for those who aren't Christians, the idea of God's wrath and vengeance might be how you actually understand the God of the Bible, right? The God of the Bible is this God who's just a meanie who rains down you know, fire from heaven on anybody who he wants to. You think that there... But to think that there is a real God who actually does show wrath and seeks vengeance is a scary proposition, so better not to think about it. Well, you're not alone. Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf has spent a good bit of his life reflecting on the wrath and vengeance of God. In his book, Free of Charge, he writes, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against them, against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out, some of them brutalized beyond imagination, and I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How, does God, how did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? by refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? (laughs) Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. While I know the topic of God's wrath and vengeance is not pleasant for us to discuss, I ask that this morning we come to God's word with an openness that might help us understand this difficult topic, not just merely intellectually, but that it might even deepen our hope and trust in our God. Let's read Esther 7, verses 1 through 10. So the king and Haman went into, a fe- into feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? 
it shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we have been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ashuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. As Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, and the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we like it when the bad guy gets it. And yet, Lord, if we're honest, we're, we struggle with a God who is one of vengeance. Because, Lord, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we deserve that vengeance. We deserve your wrath. But thanks be to God in Jesus Christ, Lord, that we, those who are in Christ, there's nothing that can separate us from your love. So, Lord, we come today and we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us to understand how your vengeance, how your wrath actually can give us hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, we in chapter six, we saw that the king couldn't sleep. He we don't know why he couldn't sleep, but in God's providence, the king could not sleep that night. He, he asks for the book of Chronicles uh, of his deeds to be read and finds that he hadn't honored Mordecai for thwarting his assassination attempt. And he seeks counsel from Haman, his right-hand man, on how he should honor someone. And Haman, in his pride, thinking the king is talking about him, gives a great gesture of having the king's robes and crown placed on the one to be honored and allow him to ride through the city on the king's horse. 
turns out the one to be honored wasn't Haman, but his sworn enemy, Mordecai. And Mordecai receives honor when he didn't deserve it. Right, sure, he saved the king's life, but as we've pointed out a couple of times, his refusal to bow to Haman was essentially dishonoring the king, as Haman was the king's right-hand man. And yet Mordecai receives the honor of the king. We saw that, like Mordecai, we don't deserve anything And yet, because Jesus has received all glory and honor, we, as his people, receive the honor of the king. This morning, our text moves in the story to a second banquet that Esther is giving in honor of the king and Haman. And the king once again asks his queen, what is your wish? What is your request? It could also be translated, what is your petition? What is your request? And Esther now begins the delicate and dangerous task of accusing Haman without incriminating what the king had, who had, after all, signed the decree with his full knowledge and approval. Her wish or her petition is that he grant her life, and her request is that he spare her people. Esther is saying, that her life and the life of her people are one and the same. Her destiny is one with her people. She has finally and fully identified herself for who she really is. The cat is out of the bag. The cards are all on the table. She explains that she and her people have been sold, not just into slavery, because that would be bad, but it'd be okay but we've been sold to die. And this angers the king greatly, and he demands that she tell him who's done this. And the response is this evil Haman. One commentator commentator surmises the king left in wrath, not only angry with Haman, but also with himself, angry for allowing himself to be manipulated by Haman. And now he must decide, can he punish Haman for a plot he himself approved. If he does so, won't he have to admit his own role in the fiasco and lose face? Moreover, he has issued an irrevocable law. How can he rescind it? And by leaving the room, the king leaves Haman and the queen alone, and Haman uses the opportunity, as we would expect, to plead for his life, but this is a big no-no. We might miss this in uh, 21st century, but Persian protocol dictated that no one but the king be left alone with a woman of his harem, particularly his queen. And even in the presence of others, a man was not to approach a woman of the king's harem within seven steps. Kind of like, you know, what we did with COVID, right? You know, stay yourself, yeah. that Haman then should actually fall on the couch where Esther is reclining is unthinkable. What is he doing? And the king returns and finds that his quandary about what to do with Haman is resolved. (laughs) Some believe that this quandary was, was solved because seeing Haman on the queen's couch being such a serious affront to the king himself that that's all the reason he needed to condemn him to death. But 
which is obviously true, but we may miss something in the text, not understanding Assyrian culture and custom. The text says this, and the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? And as the word left his mouth, that left the mouth of the king, what happened? They covered Haman's face. I read that. I was, I was just working on this sermon. And I'm going, that's such an odd thing to put into the text. And they covered Haman's face. Why is that there? Well, in Assyrian elegies, poems of lament, covering the face is seen as a treatment of the dead. And it would seem that Haman instantly dies on hearing the words of the king. And this would actually align with what is suggested next by the eunuch uh, Harbona, to hang him on the gallows he prepared for Mordecai. Now, when we hear the word gallows, we envision a device that has a rope hanging from it that is used to uh, hang someone from. But, the Persian, but for Persians, gallows had a different meaning. They were wooden stakes on which the evildoer was impaled, and, after they had, and that was done after they had died. And they were hung on the gallows to display the perpetrator for all to see so that no one would do what this person had done and to bring further humiliation. And so I think as we may miss, it is neither the king or Queen Esther who issues the death sentence for Haman, but it's actually God himself. God has taken Haman's life. Before either the king or Esther could order his death, God is the one who has taken vengeance upon Haman for the evil that he sought to perpetrate against the people of God. And while God uses Esther's providential position to bring Haman's evil deeds to light before the king and positions her to be the one who finally ends the age-old sin that we talked about that King Saul perpetrated by not destroying King Agag, and his nation, the Amalekites, the enemies of God. It is God himself who now fully puts to right what King Saul should have done and what disqualified him from continuing to be Israel's king. Haman, the Agadite, Agatite, the Agite, sorry, wore the signet ring that empowered him with the king's authority, and he effectively acted as the king's enemy or as the enemy of God's people. So we understand that context now, right? We understand what has happened in this text. But what is the application for us today? What was the application for the people who first read this story? One of the questions that we are confronted with is, would God's people still be protected by God's covenant promises. Right, what's the context here? These people, the people of God are dispersed in the diaspora of, of, the, of, of Jewish people around the Persian Empire. They are in exile. They are no longer in the land that God had promised them. They are no longer within the protection of the nation of Israel. They are no longer under the protection of a king that God had placed above them and for them. Would God's people still be protected by God's covenant promise? And the story of Esther demonstrates that God 
worked providentially through Mordecai and Esther to fulfill a promise of protection that previously would have been fulfilled through Israel's king. What we may miss in the turn of events in Esther is the connection to God's covenant promises and his promise of protection and destruction against those who oppose his redemptive work. Right? And, and, the, uh, and, and we look, read through the Old Testament, God doesn't just go around just smiting people, right? <laughs> he doesn't just take, go around just destroying people for no reason. He seeks the destruction of those who are against the redemptive work that he is doing in and through his people. We see here in our text that human evil, wherever it occurs and whatever motivation, always sets itself against God because God is the definition of goodness and righteousness. And divine justice inevitably and inextricably means the destruction of evil. Haman's death illustrates that the path to destruction is a path that proceeds step by step from the will of the wicked. There's, no, there's perhaps no better biblical illustration that Haman, uh, than Haman of this truth that John Calvin points out. Man falls according to God's providence. Man falls according as God's providence ordains, but he falls by his own fault. The true destiny of human evil is revealed in Esther, destruction by the long-promised justice of God. Like Haman on his day of judgment, on the final judgment day when the truth is revealed, the condemned will finally realize that they have no one to blame but themselves. And when Esther reveals Haman as her mortal enemy, she at the same time reveals herself to be Jewish. And in doing so, she not only indicts herself for living a lie in the harem of the king, she also brings herself under the decree of death against the Jews. And although God has taken Haman out, by the end of the chapter, Esther's plea for her life and the plea for her people still remains unanswered. Will God protect his people? The author of Esther reveals that life and death are determined by identification with the people. Those who oppose God's redemptive work and plan, like the Agites are the enemies and will come to destruction. But those who are numbered among the people of God who identify as his children are delivered from death. They receive salvation. God's people are no longer identified by a physical bloodline, but by the bloodline of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. His work is the consummation of God's covenant promises to ancient Israel the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to his people for protection from death is found in Jesus Christ. And identification with him is identifying with a people who are delivered from death to life forever, just as Jesus was. In John 14, 19, Jesus says to his disciples, because I live, you also will live. 
Jesus invites all, Jews, Gentile, people from all races, religions, and ethnic groups to be born again into the people who will be saved by God's grace from destruction. And that people is the church. You see, vengeance is the Lord's. We were reminded this morning in our New Testament reading, the Apostle Paul reminds us, it is not our place to take out vengeance. That is God's. Vengeance is the Lord's. He will not be mocked. His vengeance will come on those who are his enemies. And that's good news. Right, as Miroslav Volf reminded us, a God who is love, who does not also despise evil, cannot be a loving God. For God to be love, he also must blot out evil. Without that, there is no love. And he will bring to justice all those who deserve it. And yet there is a, another portion of that reality that should terrify us. Because all of us, like Haman, are treasonous. We are, in our nature, hostile enemies of God. We deserve His wrath, His judgment, His vengeance. We deserve to be impaled, hung on a tree in humiliation. But in an unexplainable twist to the story, the gallows that were prepared for us are used to impale another. Jesus, the sinless, righteous one, was hung in our place. He took the punishment we deserve, death, and in return has given us life. And not only life, but because of him, we are counted among the righteous. As one of God's people, as one of his children, God has been faithful to his promise to protect his people. He was faithful in Esther. He was faithful in sending Jesus then, and he is faithful now. He will protect his people. Because God shows his faithful love, vengeance is his. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we Thank you for the story of Esther. Lord, as we have often said, it is so far removed from us that it seems strange at times. And yet, Lord, the experiences are were nothing new then and are nothing new now. Lord, we 
need to be reminded that you, Lord God, are a God who will not stand for evil. That you will bring your wrath and vengeance upon it. And Lord God, that you have brought that wrath and vengeance upon your son, Jesus Christ, to be hung on a tree that we deserved. Lord, I pray that this day those who do not know you would turn to you, the one who has taken their place, And Lord, we, I pray for those who this day need to be reminded that you will work out your justice according to your will. Lord, may they find hope in knowing that. May they find comfort in knowing, Lord, that you are their justice that you are the one who protects them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.